0: came home from Mexico. We had a wonderful time in Mexico. It's a beautiful place that they're living in as well. Um, And uh, it never gets colder than the mid-40s and never gets hotter than the low 80s. And, you know, that's very different than here, (laughs) in case you're not aware. And um, it's real pretty down there. Um, But I came back, and, and I was just looking at my grass and the pasture, and feeling pretty bleak and saying, "Oh Lord, we need to sell more sheep <laughs> and uh, it's it's pretty dry, and it's pretty discouraging. And um I know that weather patterns are unpredictable. We don't know what makes for them, and to say that weather is changing is to say that weather is weather. <laughs> it doesn't really mean anything. (laughs) It always is changing, especially in Texas, Um, but there's a certain feeling if you have a lot of livestock and, and you've put a lot of effort and concern into it, there's a certain feeling of sadness and anxiety that these sort of dry seasons can give me, and Brother Butch is nodding, so I know at least somebody knows what I'm talking about, and Grady is too, so Y'all know what I'm getting at, and I just think of how often in Scripture the desert or the drought is, is spoken of as a metaphor of our condition in life and going through hardship, amen, and I thought of this passage from Isaiah, the Lord really spoke to me from it this morning, do not remember the former things. Do not consider the old things. Behold, I am doing something new. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness. I will make a river in the desert. Thank you, Jesus. And I, I guess that's our challenge, that's our task, is to find God's way. In the desert doesn't mean that he takes away the desert it doesn't mean that there aren't hard times dry times it just means that there's a way and that's what I want to find when he says remember not the former things I think he's kind of saying don't look at this present crisis through the lens of former losses He doesn't want us to remember the former things. He wants us to say, this is a desert, but there's a new look, there's a new outlook that I'm supposed to have here. Don't interpret the isolation, the dryness, as an indication of God's absence or abandonment. Think how many times in Scripture, ironically, the man of God goes to the desert to meet with the Lord. Do you think it's a coincidence that Moses goes up into the desert and meets the Lord there? Or that Elijah goes intentionally into the desert and meets the Lord there? Or that John the Baptist goes to the desert? Or that Jesus goes to the desert and meets the Lord there? It's like They are wanting to put themselves in a physical circumstance that somehow resembles the spiritual circumstance or condition of their heart. God, I'm this needy for you. It's almost like a fast. We seek the Lord in a fast because we want no distractions. We want to focus only on the grace and the blessing and the bounty that comes from Him. And in the same way, I think going into the desert can do that to you. Thank you, Lord. I read this passage in Deuteronomy. It says, God led you through the vast and terrifying wilderness with its venomous snakes and its scorpions, a thirsty and waterless land. He brought you water from the rock, from the flinty rock. That's the first big desert story in the Bible, isn't it? Amen. Other than Moses, who's in the desert of Midian, God takes them into the desert. I've shared many times about how Moses says, when he's telling his own story, he says, and he did not lead them, or God did not lead them on the direct route through the highway of the Philistine land, but he led them in a circuitous route through the desert and up against the waters of the Red Sea. As if it wasn't a mistake that they were there. In Psalm 78, he says, He brought streams from the stone and made water flow like rivers. Whenever I see somebody going through a hard time, maybe it's a a growth season, maybe it's a physical affliction, maybe it's some kind of loss, some kind of setback. Whenever I see it, Sovereignty always becomes the topic of discussion. You with me here? Are you willing to go along with me for a minute here? Sovereignty always becomes the topic of discussion. Why do you think that is? They ask questions like, "Why is God doing this?" And we ask, we ask questions like, "Why do you think it's God doing it?" And they say, "Well." Because he's king of kings and lord of lords. And the earth is the Lord's in all of its fullness. Isn't he God? Isn't he sovereign? So why is he doing this? And it's this equation that really is kind of toddler in its concept. But it's this equation where God is this monergistic actor. He's the sole actor. There's no other players in the equation. There's no other parts that he's interacting with. He's the sole doer. And the world is just under the thumbprints of his choices, right? Is that the case? If I bite the side of my lip while I'm eating a hamburger too fast, did God do it? If I stub my toe, did God do it? am I hurting? Why did God do this to my toe? There are certain pains that we can see. We would even say, God didn't do that. What are you talking about? Well, we can even see it perhaps in, in more difficult scenarios. If I become an alcoholic and I'm dying of cirrhosis of the liver, do I say, why did God do this to me? Again, we would say, well, I don't think God did that, but This is getting a little bit more difficult because there is a sense in which God did it. And there is a sense in which no way he didn't do it. So in what sense did God do it? In the sense that God gave us life with boundaries. And if we cross those boundaries, there's going to be consequences. But it doesn't either entail that if we don't cross those boundaries, we're gonna have a perfectly healthy life. So, if I violate the laws of nature knowingly, then I inevitably reap hardship. But if I keep the laws of nature perfectly, I cannot inevitably avoid hardship. And there's phrases in the scripture that just play havoc with the uh, With the monergistic view it's like um solomon he says time and chance happen to them all no not us but he he does say that time and chance happen to them all i think we've all had a little time and chance happen to us you know that's the stubbing of your toe or it's the it's a condition so in what sense is god doing it and is what in what sense is god not doing it is it possible that God can strike someone and they be afflicted? Hmm? Yes. But is that usually what's happening? No, I wouldn't say so. Jesus said that the Father in heaven sends his reign on the just and on the unjust, here's the key word, alike. Generally saying that the behavior of nature toward man is not based on his goodness or badness, it's just happening. And he sends his sunshine and his rain on the just and on the unjust alike. It doesn't mean God cannot intervene and bring judgment in somebody's life. Herod, uh, you know, the voice of a God and not of a man or whatever they were saying. Is that what they were saying? And, and he is afflicted. And, and, and Paul says, you will be blind. Um, and he is afflicted. Um, so there are these examples in Scripture where an affliction can be almost a supernatural act of angelic wrath on somebody, in order to turn them from eternal wrath. Amen. So I don't, I don't deny it. There's no, that's the problem with this whole question. It's why is it happening, and it, there's not a very clear binary answer that we can give to every situation. It's more nuanced than that. You look at the story of Job, and and um, if to distill it down to its essence perhaps to oversimplify it we have somebody wrestling for us with the dilemma of affliction and job there seems to be three predominant perspectives excluding gods and job's perspective is i am not aware of doing anything particularly bad that would evoke this particular wrath so if good things are supposed to happen to good people and bad things are supposed to happen to bad people, then something terribly unfair is happening to me. God is supposed to be just and loving and good, and I need an audience with him so so, so that somebody can help me because he's being mean to me and I didn't do anything to deserve this. That's one perspective. And the other perspective is quite related to it. It's the perspective of his friends, Eliphaz and all the rest. And they say, God is just. He's always just. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Bad things are happening to you. The evidence is in. God is unhappy with you, and you're just fooling yourself. And the third perspective, which is horrible, is God, who gives a hoot about God? Chaos is happening. Curse God and die. And that's the perspective of his wife. And the fourth perspective seems to be God's perspective. And it is, good things do not happen to good people. Sometimes bad things happen. (laughs) And good things happen to bad people. But you don't have a right to bring an accusation against whatever happens because you're human. And as a human being... You are a partaker of the sin that has brought this curse on the earth. So you really don't have a complaint against God. You need to take responsibility for your part in what's going on here. Furthermore, God's fourth perspective is, but I can take the evil which human sin has released into the world and bring something redemptive and beautiful out of it. And that's the perspective that we want to have. So I would say, in what sense is God sovereign? Is God sovereign over the micro details of our life or the macro design of the universe? Somebody might say both, but I don't think so. I don't think God made you bite your cheek. I think it's quite possible you could have lived the whole day without biting your cheek. And I think you're just going to make a very ugly pretzel out of your brain if you try to rationalize how he made you bite your cheek or how he made you do any number of things. It's baloney. Now we have a pretzel and baloney. I don't know if that's good. <laughs> you have pretzel dogs, so maybe you have pretzel baloney dogs. I don't know. Um, so is God sovereign over the micro details or the macro design? micro details means that every little thing is he's doing it he's pulling the strings and this is an equation for a God who has made automatons not a God who has made people in his own image amen but if he is a God who has made creators people in his own image then he is not manipulating every you know tooth in your head or every toe that you stub or every affliction. He's just not doing that. Instead, he has a macro design. He has a big picture final act plan in place. He has a Bulema that you can fit into. And he can be sovereign... Some of his sovereignty is dependent on you. So here's the sovereignty that's not dependent on you, okay? The sovereignty of his ultimate macro purpose for the world and what that purpose is going to prove for all time and eternity to all people, principalities, and powers, etc., etc., etc. You can't change that, okay? He is the Lord, and you're never going to change that, okay? but there is an aspect of sovereignty that you you can give god over your own life you can make him sovereign over your response over your attitude over your life's ultimate purpose and meaning Now, I suppose that somebody could rightly say, well, even if I reject that, he'll still be sovereign over it. And that's true. That's true. But that will be a sovereignty of your rebellion proving the point of his righteousness. It won't be a sovereignty of your cooperation as a co-worker with God and facilitating his design in the world. So God God can bring... God will bring evidential proof and glory to his name out of everything we go through. But God might bring beauty, grace, redemptive love out of the things Christians go through. That's not a foregone conclusion. Amen. So an example of God's macro-sovereignty and uh, micro-liberty... in our situations, is, is seen in, in Genesis 50 in the story of Joseph. Amen. So he says, what you intended for evil, what you meant for evil against me, God meant for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So here we have the, the Bulema design of bad people the Bulema design of the devil, and we have the Bulema design of God. And he's saying, if Joseph keeps his attitude right, if Joseph keeps trusting me, there's not really anything that can happen to him that I cannot incorporate and turn against the devil and his ultimate plan. And this is a phenomenal thing to contemplate, that there is nothing... That no weapon formed against you shall prosper. It will not accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. Will it hurt? It may. Will it make you question? It probably will. Will it make you feel dry and isolated at times? It will. But it does not need to accomplish the devil's design. Amen? We are in a world that was given to us by God and we took the rights that he put in our hands and we brought the cobra and the lion into this garden. We brought the devil and disease into this garden. God can't change that because the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. They're irrevocable. He doesn't take them back. Amen? He gives and he doesn't steal back. So he puts something under our dominion and we brought the enemy in. And God cannot save us from our choices. He cannot save us from the fact that the enemy is now in this world. (laughs) That's a foregone conclusion. He can't save us from the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. But he can save us from the design that the devil intended behind all of those things. Does that make sense? We know that the devil had a design in mind for Job. Didn't he? What was the devil's design? The devil has been going roaming to and fro throughout the whole earth. And he's almost got this boastful spirit. I've been checking fences and it's all looking really good. And the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? Then the Lord makes this Terribly troubling statement. He says, there is no one like him in all the world. That is a very sad statement. There is no one like him in all the world. Now, Job did not have the mental framework to coherently respond to the crisis he was going to face. But he did have the superseding trust and faith in God that was going to see him through without sinning despite the crisis he was going to face along with its confusion. So he proves God right. The devil loses even though Job is confused. He says, yes, and even if he kills me, I will trust in him. Which is inexplicably beautiful, powerful, powerful, it's the pivot of everything right there. And that's where the devil goes, Oh, no, it didn't work. Amen. And that's where God says, I told you, the Son of Man can still find faith on the earth. There's one man who's not living by his circumstances even, or even his own understanding. Thank you, Lord. Okay, can we go a little deeper here? So <laughs> God cannot save us From the activity of the devil in the world altogether though we seek his protection and we are grateful when he goes across the grain and rhythm of nature to help us out from time to time none of us believe that by praying um, diligently we're going to avoid death and if we are not going to avoid death then we acknowledge that there are forces at work in this world that God cannot stop, because in his sovereignty, he gave man free choice, and in man's free choice, we brought the enemy in. So it was God's sovereign choice to give us the freedom to destroy ourselves. He will ultimately prove his glory, but he can also rescue us from the design the devil had in mind. So, we would say that miracles are a theme of Scripture, right? We would say that God seeking us is a theme of Scripture. Would you agree? We would say that God rescuing us, salvation, these rescues of Noah, these rescues of Abraham, rescues of the, of the Israelites from Egypt, rescues, these are a theme of Scripture, right? I would say that a theme of Scripture is that God goes against what's possible repeatedly to supernaturally help his people. And, and, and this is a powerful faith-building theme. This theme is what gives us the faith for miracles. It's what makes us believe that people can be healed when we pray. But it's, it's not the entire theme. So, so I want to I focus a little bit on this theme. And, and, and just about the time when we say, See, Aussie, everything you just read makes me feel that, um, makes me, it sounds like it contradicts everything you've been saying. Give me a second and I'll explain again, okay? So a theme of scripture is that God puts us in impossible circumstances to display his glory. God puts us in impossible circumstances to display his power, to display his love, Impossibilities are God's specialty, as the psalm says. So the fact that something is impossible, to tell God that something is impossible, is the dumbest thing that you could ever say if you're a Christian. It doesn't make a lick of sense. (laughs) Because that's his specialty. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) Let's look at a couple examples. Um, Had there been no betrayal of Joseph, there would have never been any imprisonment in Egypt. We acknowledge that, and that's that. Almost looks negative, but had there been no had there been no imprisonment, there would have been no deliverance from prison. Had there been no famine, there would have been no saving of the people. Do you see what I'm saying? So, God is not in a, in the in, in the business of. Tailoring our life so that we don't need him. That isn't his point at all. <laughs> Think about Acts 17 and I've, I've ministered this before but he says God has appointed the bounds of our habitation and the exact places of our dwelling so that we would seek him. You don't seek when you're satisfied. You don't seek when you've already found. Self satisfied people don't seek (laughs) so what i interpret that to mean is not that god chose you would live at 2400 delano avenue or whatever i interpret that to mean god set up your life so that you weren't sufficient without him I i don't interpret that to mean that he appointed that you would live at this house instead of that house so much that's not the point the point is God purposefully has you in a world where life is just hard enough that you would seek Him. Amen. Life is just confusing enough, confounding enough that you would seek Him. Life is just painful enough that you would seek Him and find Him. So this is the whole reason of our lives. To seek and find God. And in every circumstance, if that's what's coming, if that's where we're going, then we're finding the purpose. And if it's not, well, we're suffering to no avail. And that was Job's prayer. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that I will see him. I, he will, I will stand upon the earth, and I will see him. And he got that, he gained that audience with God, which was the big purpose in the sense of his personal struggle, even though there was a bigger purpose to principalities and powers that he was playing a part in. Had there been no massacre of the babies in Egypt, there would have been no Moses drawn from the waters into the courts of Egypt. Had there been no slavery and oppression, there would have been no burning bush there would have been no exodus. Had there been no uncrossable seas, there would have been no demonstration of God parting the Red Sea. You see how God appoints the bounds of our habitation and gets us in impossible circumstances so that we would seek Him? In Romans 9, He, say, he says, For this reason I raised up Pharaoh that I might demonstrate my power in taking him down. My paraphrase. Do you understand? God let Pharaoh become a big deal so that it would become a bigger deal when he took him down. God led them to the Red Sea. It wasn't an accident. It was his design. Had there been no hunger, there would have been no manna. Had there been no thirst, there would have been no water from the rock. God does not want you in a circumstance without need. He wants to be your El Shaddai. He wants to be your provider. He wants to be your answer. I mean, isn't this the whole story of the Bible? Isn't it? Had there been no oppression, there would have been no Samson. (laughs) Had there been no Goliath, there would have been no David. Had there been no lion's den, there would have been no Daniel coming out of the lion's den. I mean, this is is the story. And in all of these things, everything turns pretty powerfully for the good. But we're going to get to a more nuanced angle here in a minute. Had there been no oppression of the people of God by Rome. Would there have been the hunger for Messiah? Had there been no barrenness of an old couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth, there would have been no prayer at the altar or visitation of an angel or muteness or the birth of John the Baptist. (laughs) Had there been no blindness, leprosy, deafness, lameness, deadness. Where would the miracles of Messiah have come from? So God has taken the very things that were intended by the devil to demonstrate his design and his control over the world and he said, those are my chances. Those are my opportunities to demonstrate my power. We know this is the exact thing that he says when the man who was born blind emerges in in John 9. The disciples say, Why was this man born blind? Is it because of his sin or his parents? What does Jesus say? Neither but that you may see. That you may, we're talking about a blind guy. Neither, but that you may see the glory of God. God's glory is invisible until there's an impossibility and when we stand up and talk about something that happened that man couldn't do who gets the glory amen so that's his specialty these impossibilities these supposed impossibilities they are the occasion for god to demonstrate his glory you know as kids you read you read the story of the bible and 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 i remember just getting mad i get mad at people really mad injustice so upsets a child because their parents create this this little bubble of justice around them and uh the world is so unjust and 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 it's oftentimes through stories that they start to really get a dose of how unfair The world really is because it's there's nothing fair or just about it and um, I remember reading even with Jesus and and thinking to myself I know my mom and dad wouldn't want me to think this but man if I had been there I would have killed that high priest (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean you know I mean I just would get so angry I would so bent out of shape over the injustice of it you know and and, and, and my favorite parts in the Bible was when they would really kind of sock it back to him, you know. The Lord will slap your face, you whitewashed wall. Mm-hmm, Paul, yeah. go for it. <laughs> because <laughs> children, especially children in a good environment, in a good Christian environment, have an imbalanced attachment to so-called justice. They really do. And, uh, you know, you grow up in public school, you probably have less of that. You probably get accustomed to the fact that you're not precious. You're not special. And uh, bad things happen to good people, at least if you think you're good. <laughs> Amen? But but kids, especially bubble-kept kids, they think that the world ought to be a lot better than it is. And so they are galled by injustice. And, and it's like, I remember the feeling, why didn't he... Why did he just get his ear? You know, Some of you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, my mom's getting nervous, so empathy restrains me. Um, <clears throat> but that's not the point. There's a bigger battle and design in question. That's not what God is trying to do. We don't want to create battles that God hasn't called us to fight. Then we're battling as fools. But we need to accept that we live in a state of war. We do not live in a state of peace, but a state of war. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty and they're tearing down ideas and strongholds and arguments. They're not tearing down people and circumstance and things. But they are mighty through God. And the battle is not the particulars of my comforts or my life even. The battle is a cosmic struggle. And God made me part of the people that he is trusting will put on display his confounding wisdom to principalities and powers. That's why we're here. (laughs) That through the church, he might demonstrate to principalities and powers the manifold wisdom of God. And this demonstration began with Job. But it does not reach its critical mass until the church. The church, not one man, not just Jesus on Calvary, but the church is going to be the demonstration. The church is going to say something, is going to write some letters in the sky that shuts up the devil, who is a liar and a murderer forever. Something's going to happen, something's going to emerge from the church. What is it? What, what is this big truth that's going to come out? It's the same truth Jesus spoke of when Pilate tried to threaten him. I have the power to give you life or take it away. He says you would have no power if it hadn't been given to you from above. Even what you think you're doing, you are an unwitting accomplice in an eternal design that is going against your plans. He says, you know, are you a king? You're sure talking like one. And Jesus says, you say rightly, for this cause I was born, that I might bear witness to the truth. Amen. So something is going to be coming out here. Some big testimony, some big statement. And if this statement ever emerges with sufficient power and completeness... Satan is going to fall like lightning from heaven and the principalities and powers are going to be defeated and the church is going to rise triumphant and the Lord is going to be victorious and glorious in all the universe. This is what we're moving toward. Thank you, Jesus. This is what we're moving toward. So what's the truth? I came to bear witness to the truth. And you say, well, it's anything that's true. Yeah, I accept that. But there's a a truth that Jesus and Job and the church that suffers is supposed to bear witness to. What's the truth? It's the opposite of whatever the devil believed about Job. So, So what did the devil believe about Job? What did the devil believe about Job? He loved God because everything was going well. What was the next thing he said? It's skin for skin. He likes you because you protected him. He trusts you because you have patted him and given him a good life. Take, a route, take off the hedge and he is going to curse you. So his claim is that his devotion is circumstantial. Circumstantially dependent. That is his claim. The devil is saying man does not have the capacity for convictions that supersede circumstance. That's what he's saying. He's saying man is therefore an animal. Do, you, do I believe that my dog loves me? Well, I do. I mean, it's, it's stupid, but I believe it. And, and in a certain manner, my dog does love me. But my, law, my dog's love for me is circumstantially determined. So what the devil is really saying is he is not made in the image of God he is an animal. and therefore he can be trained just like an animal, with treats and a spanking switch. I can control the whole world. Watch this. Threats of death, fear of death, hold them in bondage all their lifetime. Little enticements, little appeal to the flesh. Look at this. Look at this. Whoa, there they are. Whoa, perfect. Do you see? So the devil's claim is he is not made in the image of God. He does not have a loyalty. He does not have a trust. He does not have a faith that supersedes his circumstance. And God's truth is you lie. You lie. There is something stronger than death. Love is stronger than death. Many waters cannot quench it. Amen. And so Jesus, the whole saga of the cross and leading up to the cross, is really one example after another of how Jesus responds in exactly the opposite manner as expected by his tormentors. Would you agree with this? First of all, they're in a garden and they're not running away. They're praying lest they enter into temptation. He's building himself up to face the temptation to do what the devil wants him to do. He's fortifying his soul to do the opposite. Now the garden gate opens and a mob pours in. And Jesus tries to climb over the back wall but gets caught. Is that what happens? No, what happens? He does exactly the opposite. This is not a man controlled by the fear of death. He steps forward and he says, who are you seeking? He knew who they were seeking. They say, We are seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And he says the words, I am. And when he utters that Yahweh statement, I am, it says they fell down before him as though dead. This is the first stepping forward and saying, I am going to endure the cross and despise its shame for the joy set before me. This is not the end here at this grave. There's something beyond that I've got my eyes fixed on. So he, then, then, then it says that they came and they have clubs and spears and, and they're coming into the garden. Next thing, they are they strike him. And what does he do? He does nothing. Peter pulls out his sword and cuts off somebody's ear. And what does he do? He says, I'm sorry, Peter shouldn't have done that. Or winks at Peter and says, you go, man. What does he do? He heals. He heals his murderer. He performs a healing. He brings love. Do you think this is the opposite? If the devil was anxious about Job, he is in positive contorted torment as he watches Jesus through this whole saga. Then he's brought before before Caiaphas and he's lied about. And what does he do? That is a lie! Let me explain! No. And all that is coming out here is this truth. My trust in God is not circumstantial. I have asked him to make this cup pass from me, but I have told him nevertheless not my will, but your will be done. I completely trust him. Amen. Every step of the way, they mock him, he doesn't mock back. They strike him, he doesn't strike back. Then they're weeping for him as he's carrying his cross toward Golgotha. And what does he do? Thank you, so few came out, but I'm so glad somebody feels what I'm going through. Is that what he said? No, it's inexplicable. He's counseling them. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children for if they do this when the tree is green what will they do when it is dry and and then they hoist him up on the cross and and he's dying there hanging for hours and he's leading the man next to him who starts off cursing him he's then leading him to repentance and then he's looking down at the cross and he's seeing the cowards who the bible says ran away from him when he was arrested and he's making arrangements that his mom could be covered and taken care of by John and behold your and 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 his last thing is god please forgive them they don't really understand what they're doing he's making excuses that the people are not as guilty as they think as they seem to be it's like his whole orientation is wrong or it's right he's bearing witness to a truth that I am not your animal. I don't respond to your carrot and I don't respond to your stick. I am a servant of God and something lives inside of me that the devil in hell cannot touch. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. James tells us to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. Jesus exhibited that most holy faith. So, this shows that God's power is not ultimately revealed through human, human beings' rescue from affliction, but through their faith and trust that supersedes affliction. So the miracles don't stop, they deepen. Doesn't mean they change, but they deepen. Had there been no stoning? Now I'm going to ask some of the same miracle equation questions, but let's think of it a little differently now. Had there been no stoning of Stephen, would Paul have made it? We don't know, but Luke certainly makes it part of Paul's testimony and story, so it played a part. Hmm. Had there been no persecution of the Jerusalem church, would the church have ever spread to the uttermost ends of the earth to fulfill God's plan? Would, would Philip have gone out? Would, would these miracles have happened for the eunuch, for Samaria? Had Paul never been bound in prisons that didn't shake? What prison letters to the Romans and the Corinthians would be missing from this Bible? This is the other side of how God gets the glory. When he doesn't shake the prison, but he empowers us to love from the prison. Do you understand? When he doesn't rescue us from the stoning but he allows us to bear witness to a truth while we stand in the pit amidst the flying rocks had the believers prayers had the believers every prayer been answered we wouldn't know about the groaning of romans 8. amen and we wouldn't then know That the Holy Spirit will make intercession through us, through groanings too deep for words. And we wouldn't then know in the same chapter that neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor angels, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything can ever separate us from what God's given us, which is his love that the devil can't take from us. It's all the same chapter. Had there been no catacombs, no Colosseum execution, no martyr's mirror, no Dirk Willem who saved his persecutor from the frigid waters, how would we know of the perseverance of the saints? Whose faith quenched the fury of flames, who escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle, and others who were tortured refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. God, is there a way through my desert? That's what I started with, isn't it? God will make a way through the desert. Is there a way through my desert? If I understand what the devil has to gain, And I understand what God has to lose. And then I remember what God has to gain. And I remember what the devil has to lose. I know why I'm going through it. And I know the way through my desert. Had there been no loss of Sister Helen, or Sister Jean, or Joseph, who would be missing from this body today? The Lancasters? It set their course into the church. Brother Dan says that it's what he named Helen after because it was totally formative in his salvation. The Tyndals, who were just coming out of another church who saw the exact opposite. Oh God, get me out of this circumstance. That's That's an appropriate prayer to pray. Jesus prayed it. Just so long as you follow up with, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. What is your will, God? Your will is first and foremost eternal. That's his will. It's not temporal. He doesn't look in the pin dot of this moment. He looks through the lens of eternity. Your will be done. Amen. Amen. Had there been no seeming defeat of cancer with Sister Darla, would the Hurstritz, brother Steve and sister Jer, have been with us, completing us, bringing God's light and love and joy into our lives all these years? Amen. I remember my our own loss. Would 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 I have the ministry that God's given me? Taking if I took the things I've suffered out. No, it's out of weakness that we are made strong amen that's what Samson says out of the eater came something sweet and out of the strong came something to eat out of the carcass of your biggest battle your worst loss your biggest failure God can perfect strength, glory purpose, love Salvation. I remember that that morning. It was a bleak, rainy morning. Everything had gone wrong. I was not even knowing what to say. Had the uh, little tiny body in my arms with no life in it. And my dad was... was, um, Had his hand on my back and he was saying, Give him to God, son give him to God. Give him to God, son. And everything in me wanted to cry out, how can I give what's already been taken? Oh, but, but you can. You have a choice whether you're going to work against God or whether you're going to work with God. You have a choice whether you're going to go kicking and screaming and whining and refusing. And, or you're going to say, God, this isn't what I wanted. God, this was not what I asked for. This isn't how I thought it was supposed to be. But I'm going to lean into it. I'm going to go with you all the way. Thank you, Jesus. Now he's not just going to steal glory from your rebellion. Now he's going to grant glory to you in your love, in your faith that is stronger than death. Thank you, Jesus. Now, purpose and meaning and life is going to come out of the grave. (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Had there been no hateful slander campaign against us in 2006 that gave us ulcers and apoplexy and made us mad at times, and, oh, God, why is this happening? Would the... uh, would Sister Amy and Brother Josh Halstine have a family with us today? No, because she didn't come except through that. Had there been no publication of lies and idiocy in the media, would the Godsee family be part of us today? Probably not. It was those questions that opened the door. You see, God works all things together for the good. It doesn't mean everything that happens is good. There's a lot that happens that is bad. But God works it if we'll give it to him. Thank you, Jesus. And that's the powerful choice we have. Whether we're going to fight and white-knuckle our way all the way to the abyss, or whether we're going to say, Jesus, your will be done. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Paul sought the Lord three times. Three times. We seek him 300 times. <laughs> but that's okay. But he sought the Lord three times. Why did he seek him three times? Because God didn't answer the first two times? No, I think it's because Paul didn't like the answer the first two times. <laughs> it's okay to keep coming back and saying, God, I, please. <laughs> that's, that's human. Jesus wept over the grave of Lazarus even though he knew he was about to raise him from the dead. That's, that's not bad. That's normal. That's human. But there is something afoot that is bigger than the temporal. Amen. And if we can tap into that, we're going to unlock a reservoir of grace that is going to start flowing and we're going to start feeling that death is not the victor. Jesus is the victor. Amen. That the desert is not the victor. <laughs> That God has made a way through the desert and opened up a spring in just the right time. I've been with a lot of people when they have suffered. More than I wish. I've been with a lot of people who have died. And I know that even after death, the grieving loved one has a choice. Certainly beforehand, but even afterwards we have a choice. Where you have to choose to let go. Because our stubbornness can survive even defeat. And we only hurt ourselves in fighting against him. And it's like that throughout life. All of us. You know, God isn't trying to score a point. He's trying to earn our trust. He's trying to elicit our trust. And letting go is the hardest thing. Putting it in God's hands is the hardest thing to do. It's not hard to exert all the muscles of your brain and fear and love and devotion to grip something. That's not hard. Letting go is what's hard. Putting it in God's hands, that's what's hard. But he's the only one who's worthy and capable and able and faithful to be trusted with it. We, we get so wrapped around what we think God's plan is for our life. God's plan for our life is that we trust him. That's his plan. That's the big truth that he wants to emerge. That's how you finish as a warrior instead of as a whining loser who said it wasn't supposed to happen this way. Amen. My dad tells a story of his own conversion and how... At the death of his father and he he lost all hope in Christianity in the very idea of God he was in the military for about four years almost and and uh, they they said after he died some of them wrote us and said that he was affectionately called big teacher even in the military a man uh, who was uh, a friend of his in the military told my brothers and I with tears, your dad taught me how to love. He, he said, I was, I was a racist. I was a bigot. And your dad helped me overcome that and learn to love people. And uh, this was before he met the Lord. <laughs> so he, he had people who loved him. He had, he had some understanding of, of certain things, but he came to Christmas Uh, 1970, December 1970, at his mother's house, and and his grandmother was there as well, the only godly person that he had ever known in his life, and uh, Christmas dinner did not go well, and there were harsh words spoken, words of rejection, words of scorn toward Christianity, toward the very idea of Christ. He was hardened in his sin. He was hardened in his rejection. He was pain-hardened. And he, he walked out the door and slammed the door behind him and literally walked away from the house and went back to wherever he was living in another city. And his mother and grandmother felt so hopeless. And most importantly, they felt helpless. Helpless. Strong people get tormented when there's nothing they can do. I know. Strong people feel vexed when there's nothing you can do. You're so accustomed to fixing problems, helping out, changing the circumstance, doing this, doing that. Now what? And his grandmother and his mother got down at his grandmother's suggestion on their knees, and his grandmother led them in prayer. And she said, Lord, we have done everything we know to do, and we have said everything we know to say, and there's nothing more that we know to do. And so, God, we deliver him into your hands. Do what only you can do. Less than two months later, that grandmother was getting a phone call over a payphone from the same grandson who was saying, Grandmommy, I've met the Lord and I'm going to be baptized, and I couldn't be baptized without seeking your forgiveness. That is the power of letting go. That is the power of knowing when to put something in God's hands and stop. Just don't fight it anymore. Work with Him, put it in His hands. There's a little control freak inside of all of us. But it's just an illusion. We're not in control of anything. Or else Jesus wouldn't have told us that we were incapable of making one hair black or white. Except maybe by fretting we turn it white. But anyway, he wouldn't have said that. That we can't control the length of our days. It's just we're not in control. Accustom yourself to it. Accept it. Lean into it. I have been at the bedside of loved ones. I know what it's like. And it's it's our own view of reality that we're really fighting. We thought it wasn't supposed to be this way. It wasn't supposed to be this fast. It wasn't supposed to be like this. It wasn't supposed to be at this timing. I was okay with that, but not this way. (laughs) Make endless exceptions. This can't happen. Oh, God who am i robbing here who am i robbing am i robbing my brothers and sisters am i robbing the lord am i robbing myself do you have a purpose in this god do you have a truth a message that you want to communicate sometimes all that is we're waiting for is that faith to let go that faith and then there is a miracle. And other times, the miracle is not a a change of circumstance, but it is grace emerging from the grave. Amen. What would we be without the grace that has flowed into this body through the suffering of Brother Robert, of Sister Ann, of Sister Helen, of Brother Blair? Would we really say, oh God, if you had been faithful, he wouldn't have been sick all those years? Is that how I wish I could... Is that what I wish I could say to my, about my dad? God, if you were more loving and more kind, I wouldn't have had to pray for him all those years. No, I'd rather say, Jesus, you utterly changed me by helping me to pray for him all those years. I am so grateful that you gave us the occasion to turn out of ourselves and love something besides ourselves. I am so grateful for the grace that flowed into lives through Brother Robert Matthews or even brother John Dynas who just passed suddenly these are surprises they don't happen our way but they change us they change us they tell us the devil is a liar isn't that what brother Perry's last words were he was still in his 30s or 40s dying of of, uh, Lou Gehrig's disease and tell me the devil didn't get a big defeat that day His last words, when he could barely speak, were Tell the devil he's a liar. Tell the devil he's a liar. Jesus saves. Love is stronger than death. That's the purpose of my life. That's why I'm here. That's why there's a world spinning amidst all the blackness. That's why we're still in orbit. Because there's supposed to be a people on this planet who rise up and tell the devil, you're a liar. And everything I go through is supposed to help Jesus make that message clearer. (laughs) Hallelujah. I want you to tell the devil he's a liar. Amen. That God is greater, that love is stronger, that faith is durable, that it's not skin for skin. Everything can go wrong, Lord, and I might not even understand. But the devil's not going to turn me into one of his animals. Throw away the carrot, and I don't give a hoot about the stick. I'm going on with Jesus anyhow. The Lord Jesus gave us a direct quote from heaven about suffering when he said, My power is made perfect, in your weakness. That means power flows into the church through affliction. That's how it gets here. Can we deny that? Can we deny that through all of these that have gone through things? If you go through it alone and you go through it resisting and resenting and stiff and slow to believe and doubtful and blaming and frantic, you're going to rob yourself, and you're going to rob Jesus, and you're going to rob the body of everything it was meant to be. But if you'll lean into it and say, Jesus, Your will, Your way, Your kingdom come. I trust You, God. I trust You, God. I give it to You, Jesus. Take control. As the song says, Jesus, take the wheel. Take it from my hands. I can't do this on my own. Amen. I'm letting go amen the surest path to misery is becoming committed to your expectations more than you are committed to your god it's the surest path to misery that i know i've never seen it fail miserable unhappy people in that place but if you'll be committed to god then though time is filled with swift transition and none on earth unmoved can stand You're still going to stay holding to His hand. You're still going to come through it and say, Love is the victor. Jesus is the victor. Life is the victor. Joy is the victor. Faith is the victor. I am the victor. I've been made more than conqueror through Him who loves me. Thank you, Jesus. God's not a thief. He may have done things that weren't your way, but you still have to give it to Him. (laughs) Even after it's taken, you still have to say, Okay, I yield. I let go. I put it in your hands amen and then there's a grace lord don't don't give me the grace to fight this don't give me the grace to change this if i've already prayed and you'd ignored that or told me no give me the grace to find the meaning in this give me the faith the grace to find the purpose in this amen the anointing in this hallelujah thank you jesus